2: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of Afro-American Studies on the New Book Network. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Danielle Coutera-Coutero, Codero, is a lecturer in African-American studies and gender and sexuality studies at Princeton University. She earned a PhD in history from the University of Puerto Rico Rio Padres campus in 2012 and has been teaching at Princeton University since 2016. Professor Cordero specialized in the intellectual history of the Atlantic world, and her research and teaching interests include the topics of scientific racism, slavery, gender, sexuality, and colonialism. Today, she has joined me to discuss her wonderful new book entitled, She is Weeping, An Intellectual History of the Racialized Slavery and Emotions in the Atlantic World. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Cordero.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this lovely invitation.
2: I'm so happy to have you here to discuss this book. So as we begin, can you tell us, the audience, a little bit about the book?
1: Yes, first I would like to affirm a trigger warning since my book examines the history of scientific racism and racialized enslavement. Um, But to answer your question, my book argues that scientific discourses about racialized emotions have played a vital role in the intellectual transformations and continuities of the history of the institution of racialized slavery in the Atlantic world. Um, I, I contend that scientific theories about race intersecting with gender and sexuality have been primarily premised on ideas of emotional difference My book goes from antiquity to present times, and it aims to evidence how the racialization of emotions has fueled racial capitalism and genocidal violence then and now. And my argument aims to also contextualize how the historical emotional foundations of Racialized Economies of Enslavement Propel Contemporary Racialized
2: Slavery. Wonderful. Why did you select racialized emotions as your topic? How did you become interested in this topic?
1: Yes, well, my long-term research about the history of ideas of scientific racism since the 18th century to the 20th century had shown me that scientific anti-Blackness has fundamentally endeavored to perpetuate racialized emotional oppression in order to normalize racialized exploitation. And so the continuities and profound consequences of this anti-Black discourses of differentiated emotions compelled me to further examine the ties between structural anti-Blackness and the intellectual history of science from antiquity uh, to the present. I I therefore decided to pursue this project that advocates for emotional justice and freedom um, as being essential to anti-racism and reparations.
2: Very good, wonderful. Now to get into this, especially as you're looking at a history of ideas, what sources um, do you use in your
0: analysis?
1: Well, my book explores primary sources from antiquity to contemporary times uh, within the context of the Atlantic world. And due to the fact that my book aims to contextualize the history of ideas of racialized slavery, the sources are interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. My book uh, analyzes scientific and medical treatises, uh, philosophical texts, literary works, legal cases, governmental reports, and films, among other formats. Uh, Hence, my book includes sources, such as ancient philosophical texts, um, 18th century manuscripts of the history of science, and, of course, the narratives uh, of the enslaved.
2: Wonderful. Very wonderful. Now, your title... How did you decide on the title She is Weeping?
1: The title of my book is tied to a bit of creative writing that I integrated in the book. And the title also aims to encompass the encompass the essence of the book, what the book examines, um, and also what the book longs for or advocates for. Uh, my book denounces the racialization of emotions in the history of ideas, a history in which Blackness has been represented as emotionally excessive, um, a history in which Black emotionality has been criminalized and persecuted. And also the book also hopes for for a day where we will see uh, the right of all to weep, without being subjected to emotional policing to actually manifest and to actually uh, materialize. That
2: is a wonderful goal um, for us to have. Now, you mentioned a moment ago about creative writing. How is creative writing expressed in your text?
1: Yes, well, each chapter has an italicized fragment of creative writing in the form of prose poetry and the incorporation of creative writing is actually highly condensed and brief and I very much actually hope to extend the role of creative writing in future projects after the experience of writing this first book I feel like creative writing is a tool for me to convey the essence of my argument um academic writing in instances feels limiting. So I find that creative writing allows me to infuse further meaning into into my words.
2: You did it very well. I must say you did a wonderful job with that. Oh, thank you so so much. Um, now how do you define, getting back to the text, how do you define scientific racism and what were its origins? So how do you see it beginning?
1: Yes, well, scientific racism has been often inaccurately depicted in public discourse as marginal instances of pseudoscience, when in reality, racism has been central to the history of scientific intellectual production. My book argues that scientific racism has been fundamentally premised on the notion that different racial categories feel and express differentiated feelings. Proponents of scientific racism historically advocated in very opportunistic ways for Atlantic slavery and colonialism and white interventionism with elaborate rationalizations grounded on theories of racialized emotional difference. My book traces the foundations of this racialized, emotional differentiation to ancient precedents, to the ancient world. The ancient world relativized slavery with the notion of slavery to passions, quote unquote. Um, This notion portrays passions as being a universal, potentially enslaving source. Um, So therefore the ancient world relativized slavery through this notion while also spreading ideas about the quote-unquote biological difference of an other quote-unquote naturally enslaved person um and this was a key way in which the ancient greco-roman world uh or or ancient greco-roman philosophy uh described power was a key tool to contextualize power. Um, so I trace uh, the origins of scientific racism um, and and the centrality to of, of the idea of emotional difference to these ancient origins.
2: Okay. What about, you talk about, you discuss the theoretical definition of Blackness in scientific racism, was that Black bodies were thought to be emotionally, impulsive and to simultaneously be deceptive about their feelings can you explain that in more detail so this is actually the
1: crux of the argument of my book my book contends that blackness was fatally marked by scientific racism with the synchronicity of emotional impulsivity emotional resilience and deceptive emotional performativity So on one hand, blackness has been deemed as having no emotional self control. And on the other hand, as being highly calculated about the expression of emotions, therefore reaching performativity. This ambivalence generated a contingency, a very, very impactful and powerful contingency that engendered the inescapability of the emotional policing of blackness. Because black communities were and are portrayed as either deceptive about their emotions or authentically oppressed by them and therefore in dire need of white interventionism and carceral punishment. Um, Historically, Slaveholding violence continuously escalated because the racialized enslaved body, quote unquote, was ambiguously categorized as excessive, as emotionally excessive, and yet emotionally deceptive and still unfeeling. So, scientific theories of race about emotional. Uh, excess about higher pain tolerance, about intrinsic criminality, propelled a perpetual institutional disbelief of an either emotionally deceptive or explosive enslaved person. And this ambivalence, I argue in my book, still drives our contemporary racialized carceral landscape today.
2: Wow. Wow. That is a very powerful statement. Now, you mentioned this briefly a moment ago, but could you go a little bit more detailed into what do you mean by racial capitalism?
1: Yes, so capitalistic exploitation has been and is racialized. Uh, My book explains how Atlantic slavery in the 18th and 19th century consolidated an imperial emotional economy that was grounded on scientific hierarchies of racial differentiation in emotional worth, in emotional value, consequently constituting racial capitalism as we know it today. Um, My book um, explores how due to The intellectual history of racialized slavery in the Atlantic world, contemporary racialized enslavement is still very much rooted in emotional anti-Blackness. And the contemporary emotional economy of racial capitalism is still very much propelled by the structural carcerality that target Black emotions. My book also insists that this uh, structure or, or or the structural anti-Blackness of, of racial capitalism is actually highly visible, therefore pushing back, um, as many scholars have done before me, um, against the projection of a post-racial colorblind Uh, power dynamic in the world today
2: wow that is truly that is truly a powerful statement now as we're talking here how has the ambiguity of black emotions been used throughout history you found within your text
1: yes well my book argues that due to the already explained ambivalence in the scientific representation of black emotions, uh, so reaffirming the projection of uh, of black emotionality as emotionally excessive, emotionally adaptable or resilient, and at the same time emotionally performative, The genocidal violence of Atlantic slavery expected the quote-unquote black body to quote-unquote self-contain, to quote-unquote self-contain its presumed unruly emotions while also presuming blackness to fail in this expected emotional self-captivity So once slavery was apparently abolished, and I say this only in appearance because my book takes the stance that um, slavery has not been abolished and that slavery is still very much racialized today. Um, But going back to, to what I was saying, once slavery was apparently abolished and again, only in appearance, The modern carcerality of black emotions was further institutionalized this carceral institutionalization augmented the reach of emotional surveillance from private public masterhood to the industrial manufacture of imperialistic carceral landscapes. And this ambivalence as well, you know, I emphasized a lot on the dichotomy the between the idea of emotional excess and emotional performativity, but within this ambivalence, there's also the contingency of emotional resilience, the conceptualization of Blackness as not only having a higher pain tolerance... In the sense of an actual physical manifestation of pain, but also as having a higher resilience within the context of suffering. Um, so if we think about it very deeply, or or you know, if, if we think about the way that mass incarceration is not addressed daily in media when it should be. It's something that is just not, it's a conversation that is not centered in public discourse or media. Um, It conveys how much structures of power conceptualize black communities as being able to bear it as being able to bear the carceral landscape, as being able to withstand the carceral landscape, as being, you know, and we can think of course about how this connects to the archetype of the quote unquote, strong black woman. Um, right. the, the expectation to take it, to bear it um, is, is guided by this uh, emotional contingency of an expectation of resilience. And and we see how today this these discourses of resilience are so very much weaponized um, against black communities today.
2: I agree wholeheartedly with that statement. It's always, you have this idea and these emotions and you're able to trace that in your texts of, and you gave a very good example of the strong black woman because she needs to be strong. Um, And that, of course, as you know, has that historical root in slavery. It's always the chin up, um, you know, keeping it that you have to rise above things. So your analysis of that was great and very, very powerful in your book. So I want to thank you for that. Um, Thank you so much. Now, as an early American as myself, in your book, you discuss, quote unquote, and I have to put the quotes, abolitionism and its ties to the emotional economy of these enslaved. Can you explain that in more detail?
1: Yes, so um, in my book, I make a distinction between, of course, uh, black intellectual production um, that fueled anti-slavery thought, uh, but my book is actually very critical of white abolitionism. Um, and present, as you very well uh, explained with your question, uh, my book emphasizes the ties of white abolitionism to the emotional economy of of the enslaved. And indeed, my book at all times uh, does use quotation marks when uh, referring to, you know, the quote-unquote anti-slavery stance of white abolitionism because my book uh, takes the stance that white abolitionism was only denominationally anti-slavery, but not really anti-slavery. Because white abolitionists, white abolitionism uh, represented the legal, quote unquote, abolition of slavery as a political statement of white capitalist supremacy at the end of the day. In other words, as a cleansing force that corroborated the quote-unquote innocence of white capitalist agendas. There was never a white abolitionist project for black communities to be emancipated from their economic exploitation and carceral surveillance. Even more, 18th and 19th century white abolitionists thought was driven by the justification of an economic system that still exploited racialized work and that still kept the racialization of emotions as the basis of racial capitalism. So white abolitionists, quote unquote, mostly advocated for the notion that racialized emotional policing simply did not necessitate the legal institution of slavery as it had been known until then. Um, White abolitionists thought actually very much emphasized on the otherness of Black emotionality and consistently reassured the public on the idea that exploitative uh, racialized work would continue, even though of course they did not project it as exploitative work. Um, But the the actual project was to maintain the same, uh, you know, actual system of oppression. And it is that white abolitionist thought that emphasized that stress, the otherness of black emotionality that would, you know, cont- this kind of thought would therefore contribute to the preservation of the state sanctioned enslavement of black communities.
2: Wow. That is, when you say that, it makes it, you know, so much real as you think about the motivations and you said they were political for the abolitionists. Um, And that starts you to thinking about all of the ways in which they um, utilized those emotions and manipulated them and for their own agendas during this period. Now, you also differentiate between three types of scientific racism. Can you explain for your readers what those are?
1: Yes, well, So there you know my book uh I mean or within the context of my argument i uh you know speak of the current of biological determinism uh, and this the current of biological determinism affirmed that distinct racial categories had dissimilar biological compositions um this specific current of scientific racism, biological determinism uh, is well first is where eventually you know you have the emergence of craniology and, and phrenology emerging from from that specific current and also of course the the emergence of eugenics is tied to 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 the thought of biological determinism. But this specific uh, current, emphasized uh much on the notion of higher pain tolerance um and it also emphasized on ideas of criminality as intrinsic to the biological composition quote-unquote of blackness within the context of my argument um about emotional differentiation my book explains how the current of biological determinism devised complex theories of chemical and physiological variation in racialized emotional others um therefore tying notions of emotions to early on you know notions of humors um later on notions of temperaments um but very much so you know tying ideas of emotions to specific um, ideas surrounding fluids, surrounding facial angles, um, and therefore conceptualizing uh, quote-unquote biological traits as external markers, quote-unquote, and I'm using an actual concept that is insistently used by scientific racism, the concept of external markers. Um, external markers of morality, or external markers of behavior, or external markers even of sexual deviance, quote-unquote. Meanwhile, another current of scientific racism is geographical determinism, and this current proposes that different climates lead to different behavioral tendencies in populations. Uh, Within the context of the argument, again, about emotional difference, um, geographical determinism claimed that hotter climates generate emotional variability or impulsivity, um, laziness, and quote-unquote sexual promiscuity. Um, And then um, historical determinism, uh, which would be a third current, is, is the current of scientific racism that argues that racialized populations are in different stages of historical progress. This current um, conceptualizes uh, whiteness as being the paradigm of progress and technology, and then conceptualizes the rest of the world as being paralyzed in time in different stages of development. Within the context of the conversation surrounding emotional otherness, historical determinism conceived diverse racial categories in differentiated phases of emotional development. In many occasions, conceptualizing whiteness as being the racial category that could reach adulthood and then infantilizing the rest of the world and in, in, basically infantilizing people of color.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Wow.
2: That's a, you know, as you're reading this and as you're reading your text, it really comes through very well and how much of that has used been both historically and today. Um, that's one thing that that's one of the many things that you do well in the text. Now, In your book, you use the example of the Haitian Revolution and how it has been betrayed. Can you say a little bit more about this?
1: Yes, well, the primary sources of the Haitian Revolution show how Atlantic slavery was understood by the French Empire as an emotional economy that guaranteed the international standing of European empires and the capitalistic exploitation of colonies. For the French empire, the return of slavery after the revolutionary abolition within the context of the Haitian revolution was overall a political statement. Um, For the French empire, the uninterrupted emotional policing of blackness was considered to be crucial to the quote-unquote profitability of slavery this profitability was quote-unquote um, i want to call clarify quote-unquote profitability um, was linked to the durability of coloniality and racialized oppression well beyond than the economic quote-unquote productivity of the institution of slavery itself therefore the sources center a lot more the international projection of the French empire as one that could provide proof of establishing and and sustaining racial oppression than the actual quote-unquote economic productivity quote-unquote of the institution of slavery itself. So furthermore, In imperial sources, the French empire proclaimed that the condition of slavery emerged from the emotionally undeveloped, quote unquote, spirit of blackness. The imperial sources project as if the Haitian revolution and its victories, right, by the enslaved were being enacted by, you know, complications, complications emerging from emotions, as if the emotions themselves were creating the quote unquote chaos in the sources, the emotions, emotions are personified in that sense. Uh, in order to further dehumanize the enslaved, the, you know, enslaved population and also formerly enslaved population. So the end, you know, and, and to go back to the notion, you know, the, the portrayal was as as The condition of slavery emerging from the quote unquote spirit of blackness and undeveloped quote unquote spirit of blackness and the end of the emotionally superior slavery led by European empires would represent an emotional involution towards Africa and towards quote unquote black rage. Therefore, there was this advocacy for the return of slavery as a way to make a political statement that corroborated the triumph, the white imperial triumph against Black rage, quote unquote. So the revolutions of the enslaved were hence strategically characterized as cannibalistic quote unquote, black rage uh, that required reconquering.
2: Wow. That is, you know, if you think about how many, how the Haitian revolution has been portrayed even then and now um, you have definitely, your analysis is spot on in what you write and how it has been portrayed in both historical texts and in the media. Now, as a 19th century, um, scholar who's interested in black women's history and you spoke a little bit about this earlier you said this notion of slave to passions in your book you mentioned unbridled sexuality how quote unquote how has this been used against the enslaved population
1: well um yes and and recalling you know the the trigger warning as i move on the the theories of geographical determinism have been historically used to normalize imperial sexual violence. And still today, the influence of geographical determinism and just to to reaffirm geographical determinism claims that um, hotter climates, quote unquote, lead to emotional impulsivity laziness, and quote unquote sexual promiscuity. So the influence in geographical determinism in media today is most prominent in the hypersexualization of people of color through pervasive emotional media archetypes, um, such as the quote unquote Latin lover, the quote unquote fiery, fiery, fiery Latina, um, the quote-unquote crazy Latina girlfriend, um, the quote-unquote Jezebel, and the quote-unquote Sapphire archetype. And it is important to note that the emotional archetypes about Latinidad disproportionately affect the lived experiences of Afro-Latina communities. Um, and as a note, to, I, I want to add this to the examples of of emotional media archetypes that that I would just mentioned. I I would also like to mention that geographical determinism and how it drives this idea of emotional excess and impulsivity tied to notions of heat um, is key to also the rise of the quote unquote, angry black woman archetype that is so incredibly impactful uh, in in not only media, but in in you know social dynamics. every single emotional media archetype that I mentioned and that we see so pervasively in media has have profound real life implications.
2: very true. I would definitely agree um with that analysis. Now, you make the case that quote unquote, abolition has not happened. Can you explain that in a little bit more detail and you alluded to it earlier, um, but could you go into that a little bit more detail.
1: Yes, so my book affirms that the quote unquote abolition of slavery was really a political and economic reformulation of the intersection of freedom citizenship, and emotional criminalization. So to emphasize, the majority of those allegedly, quote unquote, emancipated from slavery in the Atlantic world in the 19th century were immediately subjected to systems of obligatory labor um, or exploitative work. Furthermore, anti, quote unquote, white slavery campaigns in international law, in you know, particularly in the early 20th century, were driven by ideas of the urgency of the quote-unquote protection of white quote-unquote female chastity and also white quote-unquote childhood innocence. Uh, the concept of quote-unquote white slavery as the undesired outcome. Of the legal "quote-unquote" abolition of racialized slavery, um, outcome that was portrayed as endangering white women and children, still influences the recent intellectual history of media representation and international law about contemporary enslavement. Uh, if we think about it, the the like most influential imagery and or how to say it, like the most influential films surrounding human trafficking today quote unquote um, one of them is taken for example right like the imagery is of a white teen, uh, you know a, a white teenager in peril basically um in, in a very you know gendered heteronormative scope In addition to that, anti-trafficking campaigns today also tend to center not only the voices of white survivors, marginalizing and silencing survivors of color and particularly black survivors, but but also tend to center imagery of human trafficking, being a a source of peril for white families, or being a, a source of peril for white familial bonds. Which, to recall the, com, you know, what we were talking about within the context of the representation of white abolitionism, the white slavery "quote unquote" rhetoric is actually incredibly, incredibly similar to the rhetoric of white abolitionism, um, because white abolitionism. Emphasized mostly on white familial bonds in, in their campaign and used this rhetoric of uh, white familial bonds and the idea of the nuclear white privileged family as a way to, you know, centering the the, the longings, capitalistic longings of those families as, as, as a way to even further emphasize the otherness. Of black familial structures. So here with the current narrative of anti-trafficking campaigns, usually, you know, the, the portrayal is as if the narrative shifted. And now it is, you know, white women and children, the ones that are uh, endangered by the uh, undesired outcome of the quote-unquote legal abolition of racialized slavery. Um, even if we think about it, the the shift in, like, the semantic shift of moving from uh, using the word slavery to now using the word human trafficking, it was sort of a revisionist project to center the idea of white slavery uh, being the the undesired outcome of, quote-unquote, abolition. So much that... You know one can even think about how this falls into the conversation surrounding appropriation Um, because there's of course a lot of conversations surrounding cultural appropriation Um, the way that i engage with the topic in my teaching for example i'm going to be teaching a class uh, next semester called a history of intellectual appropriation of blackness um, I prefer to use the concept as a historian of ideas of intellectual appropriation um, to emphasize a lot more on epistemicides. Uh, but having said that, um, something that um, I will be you know, incorporating a lot in, in, in that class is how all, we do not only have intellectual appropriation within the context of music, for example, right? But also intellectual appropriation of struggles intellectual you know white intellectual appropriation of black struggles. And this is an example of that. Uh, the white slavery rhetoric appropriates um, the struggle and endeavors to take over everything, including the narrative of slavery. And so this is this a powerful, powerful, ma- marginalizing mythology when contemporary slavery is still very much racialized, And as I mentioned earlier, and as I emphasize in my book, this is very visible.
2: I agree. I mean, those statements are definitely very accurate. And it's one of those things where you can't separate the two. And the example that you used in the movie Taken is a great example of how this all comes to play and use going from white slavery. Now we're getting more into this notion of human trafficking. And the question always is, who is being trafficked? Um, and predominantly, you do most often see people of color, they get erased from that narrative most often, mm-hmm. um, especially yes, in the media.
1: Yes, or, or sometimes the when when there is representation of, of survivors of color, um, it is a representation that still antagonizes survivors of color and recurs to victim blaming, um, and it doesn't tend to follow the same paradigm of quote unquote white innocence and particularly white childhood innocence, quote unquote, that tends to be represented in anti-trafficking
2: campaigns. Very true, very true, it all goes back and and we won't get into it now, but it goes back into their childhoods, how they were raised, and as you quote unquote, say that notion of innocence and who is innocent versus who is not. Mm-hmm. And your book lays that out very well of where all of these ideas, the origins of these ideals and how they still actually shape contemporary society today and how they are still prevalent. Now, as we are coming to a close, I want to ask you, Professor Cordero, what do you want readers to take away from the book?
1: Yes, well, I I am aware that I am not able to truly control what readers could take away from the book. Um, And it is also my first book. uh, And I decided that my first book was going to be a book going from antiquity to the present in the context of the Atlantic world, which is, you know, a a massive context. Um, And also I, I also had multiple emergencies while writing it. So I feel a vulnerable connection with the book, Um, with a book that was not only hard to, to write because of the, uh, the the actual scope, large scope of the book, but also because of my, uh, personal situations that I went through while writing the book. Um. So where where I'm going with this is that I I I I feel very vulnerable whenever whenever, or I know vulnerable when I imagine readers reading my book, but I imagine that this is something that uh. A lot of people go through, and um, but that aside, I hope that my book conveys the supremacy, the contemporary supremacy of the ideas of scientific racism, the power that they have held, and still very much hold. And actually, my my future projects will focus on denouncing the profound influence of theories of scientific racism in power and institutions today. And I also hope that my book, Above All, is a safe, reparative space for those persecuted by racialized emotional policing. And I would say that that's my
2: my priority
1: with this book, truly.
2: I want to say, Professor Cadero, you did an excellent job and you accomplished your task. Uh, Granted, you are correct that you had a large scope that you were working with, but you did it flawlessly. And I want to urge readers to go out, pick up a copy. Please read She Is Weeping to learn more about the intellectual history of racialized slavery and emotions in the Atlantic world. Thank you for joining me today, Professor de Cordero. It has truly been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you about this topic. Um, I will say once again, readers, please go out and get a copy of this book.
1: Thank you, Dr. Carrera. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you again for this lovely, lovely invitation. And to you and to any listeners, um, I wish you all health uh, and happiness. Thank you so, so much.
2: Thank you, Dr. Cordero.